I'm amazed always in God's providence how messages coincide and dovetail together. Bob DeWay talked a lot about the Spirit and the work of the Spirit last week in 1 Corinthians. We'll be delving into that once again here in Matthew. Now, today, we are going to learn that not only did John the Baptist have a baptismal ministry, but Jesus Christ also had a baptismal ministry, albeit not a physical one, but one in which he would place believers into the care of the Holy Spirit. And so it's my prayer that you would see the significance today of Jesus baptizing all believers in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, we're going to be learning three major things. Number one, we're going to be learning that there really are no higher order Christians, some that have the Holy Spirit and others that do not. No, every believer has the Spirit. Second, we're going to be learning that the Holy Spirit's ultimate goal is to ensure that we come to faith in Christ. And so the greatest gift that God had ever given us, Jesus Christ gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit to ensure that we would come to faith in him. Number three, because we are all in the Spirit as believers, we are guaranteed security until either we go to be with Christ or Christ comes for us. And so today we're going to learn, brothers and sisters, that everything we have as believers was given to us as a gift from God by the Spirit, whether it was the Scriptures, whether it was our faith, or whether it's our security, all because Christ baptized us in the Spirit. Now, I want you to remember as we pick it up here in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, that John the Baptist met the Israelites out in the wilderness, and he was preaching repentance. But recall, he not only had a preaching ministry, but one of baptizing. And so that's where we pick it up here. Matthew 3, 11, John says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the first thing I want to point out here this morning is I'll pull up my pointer. I want you to notice here when John says, I baptize you with water, I'm going to be making the case today that the better preposition is probably in. The uh, preposition in the Greek, "n" should be rendered probably in here. And I'll explain why. First of all, think about the context. Is John the Baptist going around with a canteen and sprinkling water upon people? Is he baptizing with? No, he was placing people in the Jordan. And proof of that is found five verses later when we see Jesus coming up out of the water. The verb anabino is used. Now, the significance, as I'm going to show you later, I'll just give you a little foreshadowing, is that I believe the parallel is that you and I are not just baptized with the Holy Spirit, but in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. That's where this is going to be leading. Now, I'm going to come back to that, but first of all, I also want to deal with this text where it says, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Notice in blue that phrase, he who is coming. It comes from a participle in Greek, one word. So all of that is to translate one word in the Greek. And I believe that that is a messianic phrase that we could render the one who comes. Now, what's interesting is here it's being used in Matthew 3.11, the one who comes, erkamonos is the, the participle, I believe is a messianic phrase. Ironically, John the Baptist is going to use that identical term when you get to Matthew 11.3. So here we're in Matthew 3.11, in Matthew 11:3, John the Baptist will use it once again. Now, why do I think that this is a messianic phrase? Well, let me show you where I believe this phrase originated 
And the reason I'm doing this is I want you to see that even subtle sayings come from the Old Testament, and they have to do with messianic expectations. Now, I believe the first reference was found in Genesis 49.10, that phrase, the one who comes. And originally, it was given by Jacob as he was blessing the 12 sons. Remember, his 12 sons end up being the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, when he turned his attention to his son Judah, from whom the Messiah comes, listen to what he said in Genesis 49.10. And here, by the way, I prefer the New English translation. He said, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. The nations will obey him. Now, if you have an NASB version, it'll say, and that's the version, by the way, I normally use, it'll say until Shiloh comes. Okay, but I'm using the, the reading from the Net Bible, which I think better renders the original Hebrew. There's a Masoretic text that comes from the Qumran scrolls. We have a, a Pentateuch, uh, the Samaritan Pentateuch that has this reading. We have various versions of the Septuagint that have this reading. So the better reading, I think, is until he comes to whom it belongs. Now, what was this text originally saying? Well, notice it was promising that the scepter and the ruler's staff would not depart from Judah. Those were the indication that the kingship, the idea that the kingship would not depart from Judah until the Messiah would come and the nations would end up obeying him. Now, 700 years after this was written, I believe Isaiah builds off of it, although he adds a little bit of something to it. Isaiah 59.20. Notice here, Isaiah said, a redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression, in Jacob declares the Lord. Now, notice here, Isaiah is talking about not just anyone, but a redeemer. The term goel is the person who would purchase back that which was lost. Now, you and I don't have to guess as to whether Isaiah 59.20 is about the Messiah because the Apostle Paul tells us it is. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 11.26. Romans 11.26, and I'll show you that, indeed, the Apostle Paul thought that this was messianic. Again, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, verse 26. Now, most of you, as you're turning there, probably remember that's where Paul guarantees one day all Israel will be saved and mass, they will come to faith in the Messiah. But after he says that, he adds Isaiah 59, 20. Listen to what he says. Romans eleven twenty six. Paul said, and so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Now, I want you to notice here on the screen, on Isaiah 59, 20, the Redeemer would come to Zion. Notice Paul changes that, and he says he will come from Zion. Is Paul just playing fast and loose with the prepositions or the, the Old Testament? I don't think so. I think he's reapplying it. So let's ask ourselves in Isaiah's day, what did Zion refer to? Well, I think it referred to Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem. But when the apostle Paul is citing it, remember, he's talking about all Israel being saved. When is all Israel being saved? At the second advent of Christ. Well, where is Christ now? He's in the ultimate Zion, which is the heavenly Jerusalem. And so he's waiting for him to come from Zion to save all Israel. But nonetheless, you have to see that, yes, Isaiah 59.20 was about the Messiah. 
Now, I don't have time to turn to this one, but just jot this one down if you're a note taker. Ezekiel 21, 27 uses the identical phrase to whom it belongs, the one who comes to whom it belongs, that's used in Genesis 49, 10, albeit it's being used in an ironic way. Okay, so again, jot that one down, Ezekiel 21, 27. But to me, the coup de grace is found in Psalm 118, 26. Now, before I read you Psalm 118, 26, let me set the stage for the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms go from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Hallel means praise. And I believe that these Psalms were constructed at the dedication of the second temple. So let me do a little bit of history with, of Israel with you this morning. I want you to remember that Israel, because of their sin, was led into Babylonian captivity for how long? For 70 years. The first deportation happened in 605 B.C. There was another deportation, 597, and finally in 586. Well, recall, around the year 538, 539 B.C., God used the Medo-Persian ruler Cyrus to bring the Israelites back home. Well, they end up rebuilding their temple. In fact, you can read about this in Ezra chapter 6. When they dedicated it, I believe that they had, con- they had constructed these psalms, these psalms 114 to 118, so that they would praise God as they would come to the temple, whether it be during Pentecost, whether it be during the Feast of Tabernacles, or during Passover. And so let me share with you one of the verses here, Psalm 1826. Notice it says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now, certainly this would apply to every Israelite who loved God, but ultimately they longed for the day that this would be said of the Messiah who would reign and rule from their temple. In fact, proof that that phrase, blessed is the one who comes, is messianic, is found in the fact that when you get to Matthew 21, 21 verse 9, when Jesus comes in what we call his triumphal entry, remember the crowd is shouting, blessed is the one who comes. And I'm sure some of them knew that he really was the Messiah, and others just said it perhaps in ignorance, but the irony should not be lost. This is a messianic phrase. Not so says even the crowd, so says Jesus. The same phrase is used in Matthew 23, 39. Remember, Jesus in the temple excoriating the leadership of Israel because they won't believe in him. Then he says, your house is left to you desolate, and you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. Jesus is the one who comes. It was always about the Messiah. And so do you see when John says, the one who comes is mightier than me, he's not just blowing smoke, he's talking about the Messiah. And so this explains then why when we get to Matthew eleven three, John the Baptist is going to have that moment of doubt. He's, he's in jail and he's going to be put to death. And so he sends a question back, it says, and he said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? That's the message that goes back to Jesus via John's messengers. Now, literally, it's the same participle that's being used here, that's used in Matthew 3.11. Are you the one who comes? What is John asking? Are you the Messiah? And you remember what Jesus' response is? From Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, tell John, Jesus says, that the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame leap like a deer, 
And then he cites Isaiah 61. The poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus cited his messianic credentials and all that he did to prove that he was indeed the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, the reason I do this little excursus is to show you that even in small details, we can see that all that was expected in the Old Testament of the Messiah is found in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's important because on the darkest of your days, you can know that you can know that you can know that your faith is well-placed in Jesus. He is indeed the Messiah. Now, let's get back to the main point through here in verse 11 of Matthew 3, and that is the contrast of these two baptisms. Now, I've already read this text, but I want to still build off of this. Notice we talk about him baptizing with water. We talked about this phrase that's messianic, but I also want you to see that the emphasis ultimately here is between the baptism of John. Notice he's going to baptize with or in water, but the Messiah who comes is going to baptize with or in the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, so again, I'm going to put the preposition here in the box. That comes from the Greek preposition en, and it can be rendered with, it can be rendered by, or it can be rendered in. And my contention is that it should be rendered in. Why? Well, partly because of the context. Was John the Baptist again baptizing merely with water? He was sprinkling a little water on people? Or was he placing them in the Jordan and dunking them. Now, this isn't a debate between immersion and sprinkling, but what I'm saying is immersion has a powerful symbol to it. And part of it is the death of the old when you go under the water and the resurrection to the new. But the other part is that it symbolized that God would one day pour forth his spirit in that you and I would be submerged or immersed in the sphere or the care or the camp of the spirit. And the idea then is when you and I are in the sphere of the Spirit, we're going to be brought to faith in the Messiah, a faith that we couldn't do on our own. And we're going to have an obedience to God that we couldn't do on our own. So we're going to be regenerated. We're going to be saved. You and I are going to be sanctified. We're going to be preserved. Why? Because we're going to be left in the care of the Holy Spirit, in the sphere. That's the idea, I think, that is being conveyed here. And again, I'll build off this when we get to our applications. Now, one thing I have to come to, though, is notice not only are we to be baptized by the Messiah in the Holy Spirit, but also fire. Well, what is the fire a reference to? There's two options. First, it could be a reference to the judgment of unbelievers, but it also could be a refinement of believers. And I think clearly it's the latter. Why? Well, notice the immediate context. The Messiah is going to baptize us, believers, the you, in the Holy Spirit, and fire. So I think the Holy Spirit and fire here are going together. And this is only for believers. You don't have unbelievers being baptized in the Spirit. Okay, now, what in the world does this fire have to do with? Well, I think it has to do with the idea that when we are in the care of the Spirit during the church age, God uses the Holy Spirit to refine the people of God. We see this, by the way, talked about and represented, I think, all the way back in Ezekiel chapter 9. You remember in Ezekiel chapter 9, we saw the idea that the judgment or the refinement of God's people would begin even in the temple itself. Now, there was wrath being poured out, but you see, Peter builds off of that in 1 Peter 4, 17, and I want you to turn your Bibles there because you're going to see that, yes, the Holy Spirit 
and God's work in the Spirit is to refine the people of God. So that, yes, you and I go through fire, not in the sense of wrath, but in the sense of God removing the impurities of a people who are being made holy. And so we see this, for example, in 1 Peter 4, 17. I hope you've all turned there. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. Notice Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, when Peter says that the judgment begins with us, does that mean that we're incurring as believers the wrath of God? No, he's talking about this refinement. That yes, you and I are saved through this age, but as through fire. That the impurities of sin are removed like dross from metal through the fire. Again, this is the theme, if you're a note taker, in Malachi 3, verses 2 through 3. That when the messianic age would dawn, he would remove the sins of his people. And so I think that that's certainly what's being referred to here. The idea then is that the Messiah is going to place us believers in the care of the Spirit, and in the care of the Spirit, he will refine us with fire. Now, keep going here in verse 12, we learn that Jesus is the great judge. I want you to remember that this idea of judgment has been referred to by John the Baptist earlier In John 3, 7, he talked about, remember the axe being put at the root of the tree? Three verses later in verse 10, he said it would be thrown into the fire. Well, now in verse 12, he says this, that his, that's the Messiah, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, there's three images that I want you to see and put together. First is the winnowing fork. Second is the wheat. And the third is the chaff. All of this is building off this agricultural metaphor. If you lived as a farmer in the ancient Near East, if you were doing farming, you would take your winnowing fork and you would take your wheat and you would throw it up in the air. And hopefully there would be somewhat of a breeze and the breeze would blow the chaff, the lighter elements, away but the heavier grains would fall straight down and you would keep that as what you wanted to throw in the barn. But the chaff would be bundled up and probably used for kindling or some sort of burning. Well, that's exactly the imagery here. The idea is that the Messiah is the one with the winnowing fork. And when he throws up humanity, as it were, the believer is the wheat and the unbeliever is the chaff. Where does the believer go? Well, we go to the barn. That's the kingdom. But where does the unbeliever go? Unquenchable fire. That's where they go. Does everyone see that? Now, one thing I want to point out in this text is what we have here is really a universal summary. That is a summary statement that's being used by John, being written down by Matthew. And I say that because some amillennialists will claim from this text that because Jesus has both the wheat and the chaff, both the believer and the unbeliever, the judgment must all happen in one day. Because you see, the amillennial says, no, Jesus is not coming to reign over the earth for a thousand years. Why? Because they'll say there's only one resurrection of both the believer and the unbeliever. And so they take summary statements like this, and they say this must all happen in one day. No, 
you and I have to realize that the rest of the Bible shows that there's a process to the salvation of God's people and even the wrath upon his enemies. Okay, so let's say I'm preaching the gospel and I say Jesus Christ ascended into the heavens from where he's coming again to bring wrath upon his enemies, but salvation for his people. When I'm using that summary statement, does that mean that I believe it all happens at once? No, I know that there's a process. The process begins with the rapture of the church and our salvation before the wrath of God. The 70th week is poured out as the wrath of God. Jesus Christ comes and he sets up his 1,000-year reign, after which there's going to be in Revelation chapter 20 a judgment for all unbelievers while they'll be sentenced to hell. So do you see that there's a process and we have to take summary statements and not try to force all of the details into them? The other thing I want to mention in this text is the term unquenchable is important. It means that this judgment is without end. It is everlasting. The term unquenchable comes from the term in Greek where we get our English term asbestos. It is unquenchable. It will never go out. Now, I say that because as you go out the door today, you're still going to run across in our culture people who are annihilationists and who are universalists who claim that there is no everlasting judgment. Let's start with the universalists. There are people out there that believe one day God is going to reconcile all people to himself and there will be no judgment. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that contradicts what Jesus taught. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, narrow is the path that leads to salvation and few find it. But wide is the path that leads to destruction and many enter in through it. That doesn't sound to me like universalism. So universalists ultimately have the issue not with Eric Dalmer or any other teacher, but with the teaching of Jesus Christ. What about the annihilationists? The annihilationists will say, well, there's going to be a time where unbelievers, they'll, yes, be judged, but they will cease to exist. And their ideas in their mind is that, well, if God didn't make them cease to exist, he must be an ogre because he would be judging them forever. Well, again, God does judge forever. And we see that in many texts by Jesus. Jesus says that there's going to be an everlasting fire in Matthew 18.8. We see that he says the same thing, that there's an everlasting fire in Matthew 25.41. His apostles teach the same thing, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, where there's going to be eternal destruction. Now, when we see that term destruction, some annihilationists take that and they say, aha, destruction means annihilation. Let me ask you this. You ever seen a car destroyed in an accident? Did that mean it ceased to exist? I've had a car that was destroyed before, or I've seen it at least in my family. Now, I can tell you when the car was destroyed, it didn't cease to exist. It didn't function properly, but it doesn't cease to exist. In the same way, in the Bible, destruction when it comes to judgment is not annihilation. The Bible is very clear that the wrath that's coming is forevermore. And the reason why that's very important is what John, I think, wants us to see and what Matthew is recording for us by the Spirit is that being identified by, or I should say, with Jesus, being identified with Jesus Christ, the Messiah, by faith, leads to refinement by fire. But rejecting Jesus Christ leads to eternal judgment in fire. 
That's the great contrast that John the Baptist, I think, intends for us to see. Okay, now, with that, I've got a couple of application points for you here this morning. Number one, we must understand that Christ's baptizing of believers in the Spirit is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that the last days when they would come, God would pour out his Spirit on all mankind. All mankind, not meaning every single human being, without exception, but all mankind without distinction, meaning both Jew and Gentile. Number two, we should know that being placed in the sphere of the Spirit ensures both our sanctification and our security. Everything that you and I have, whether it's the Scriptures, our faith, our sanctification, and our perseverance, is a gift of the Spirit. Okay, let's begin with number one. I want to show you that it was first promised in the Old Testament, in the last days, that God would pour out his Spirit, and he would pour it out like water. And that's why we have baptism. One of the imageries of baptism is that we're placed in the sphere of the Spirit. Not that baptism does it, but baptism symbolizes it. Baptism always symbolizes what God has done for us, whether it be in Christ or in the Spirit. Now, where do we first see this promise that one day God would proud his Spirit? Well, I think we first see the allusion to it in Numbers chapter 11. Please turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11 particularly verse 27. Numbers 11, 27 through 29. Please turn your Bibles there. And as you're turning there, I want you to remember the context. Here Moses was having difficulty reigning over the people of Israel. Why? Because there was a lot of those rascals, right? And they're out in the wilderness. Things were difficult. So we know that Moses needed help, and God supplies for him 70 elders. And it says in the text that God placed the Spirit upon these 70. So what the 70 do to show that they have the Spirit is they went to the tent of meeting and they prophesied. Now, when they prophesied, the text is very clear that they only did it this once. Why? Because they did not usurp the unique spokesman role of Moses. So they only did it this one time, this prophesying, to show that indeed the Spirit had come upon them. But as you're going to find out, there's two guys. There's always two, right? Eldad and Medad, they didn't get the memo. They didn't show up at the tent of meeting. They're out in the camp and they're prophesying away. And again, they only did it once, but this causes concern for Joshua. Listen to what it says, Numbers 11, 27. It says, so a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. It says, verse 28, then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. Let's stop there for just a moment. What was Joshua concerned about? Why was he upset that Eldad and Medad were prophesying? He was concerned that the uniqueness of Moses as the spokesman for God par excellence in the Old Testament, that that would be compromised. That pretty soon, willy-nilly, everybody would be the spokesman for God and you'd lose control. That was probably his concern. But I want you to notice Moses' response to him, and this is where we start seeing this foreshadowing that one day God's going to put the Spirit on more than just the mediator of the old covenant. Verse 29, but Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. And this starts to foreshadow that one day the spirit isn't going to just come upon the prophet of the people of God, but it's going to come upon all the people. That's the idea. 
Now, I believe about 600 years after this, around the year 835, the book of Joel was written. I believe that Joel was written very early. I've given some evidence for that in a Sunday school class. And Joel builds off of this expectation that one day the Spirit would be poured out, and it would happen in the last days. Notice what he says, Joel 2, 28 through 29. He said, it will come about after this, this is the last days, that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Now, I want you to see here, first of all, this phrase where he says, it will come about after this. Does everyone see that in the text? In context, that's the last days. Now, also notice where he says, I will pour out my spirit. That's the imagery that the spirit will be poured out like what? Like water. Okay, so you and I are going to be baptized in the water. And it's symbolizing that you and I are placed in the care of the spirit. He's going to pour it out. Now, also notice it's going to be poured out not just on the prophet of God, but all people. And again, it doesn't mean all people without exception. Otherwise, you'd have universalism. But it means all people without distinction, Jew and Gentile, the lowliest and the greatest, the youngest and the oldest, they're going to be given the Spirit. Now, remember at Pentecost, how does this manifest itself? Well, you have people from all over the world, don't you? You have people from every country. They're in Jerusalem. It's Pentecost. The Spirit comes, and they speak in tongues. But you know what? They can understand one another. Why? Because the Spirit was poured out upon all people. The person from Cappadocia, the person from Africa, the person from Judea, the person from Israel, the person from Samaria, it was poured out on all. Because God's elect isn't just the Jew but they're Gentiles as well. And so that was the great promise. Now, remember, when we come to the New Testament, Christ explained to the believers that it was their, to their great advantage that he would go away so that he could send the Spirit. In fact, Jesus says that in John 16, 7, he says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. He says, if I don't go away, the helper will not come. But if I do go away... I will send him to you. So who is the helper? The helper there is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Now, why does Jesus have to go away in order to send the Spirit? We're never told that. But because he's God, we can affirm that that was part of the economy of God, that yes, he had to ascend first prior to the sending of the Spirit. Now, what's the benefit of the Spirit? Well, notice here, Jesus tells us, why is it so important John 14, 16 through 17, Jesus said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, first of all, dear ones, notice this first section in blue, another helper. The term helper there is parakletos. And the term parakletos originally was used by wealthy families in the Greek culture of the day where they would have a defense counselor on a retainer who would protect them from various assaults, whether it be some governmental bureaucrat 
or some private citizen. And so the Parakletos was one who defended the family. Now, many of your English translations will render this helper or comforter, and they wrestle with how to render it. And I'm not saying we should make it defense counselor. I'm not saying that. But what I think we should have in our mind is this, that when Jesus, the one who purchased us by his blood, left to the heavenly realm to prepare a place for us in the Father's house, he left his family in the care of the greatest counselor, the greatest defender that humanity could ever have, the third person of the Trinity. That's what he did for you and me. What did we contribute to it? Sin? Rebellion? Yes, he brought us to faith, but that was by the Spirit. And so that's what's being accentuated here. Notice he explains who the helper is. This is an appositional statement. He says, that is the spirit of truth. So we're not left wondering who the helper is. We know that it's the Holy Spirit. Why does Jesus refer to him as the spirit of truth? Because the Holy Spirit is where truth proceeds. Not that it's just locked into the third person, the Trinity. It's also the Father and the Son. But the idea is the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to lead us to the truth. He's going to give us the scriptures. He's going to bring us to faith in the scriptures so that you and I have faith in Jesus Christ, that we will find the truth. But notice the world won't know the spirit. Why? Because it doesn't know him. It won't come to acquiesce to what the spirit says. But for us who have been baptized in the spirit by Christ, Notice he's going to abide with us. The term abide there, meno, meno means to remain. The spirit is going to remain with us. So why are you and I secure? Because you and I are placed in the protection of the third person of the Trinity. And he's going to ensure that you and I will enter glory. That's what the spirit will do for us, dear brothers and sisters. Now, when did the spirit first come in God's economy, in his salvific plan? Well, I believe it first comes at Pentecost. I want you to turn your Bibles to Acts 2.33. Please turn your Bibles to Acts 2.33. And I want you to think about in the Old Testament now, in the New Testament, we saw this promise that the spirit would be poured out. Jesus says in John 16 and John 14 that he'd be the one who would send it. Now in Acts 2.33, we're going to see it happen. Now, as you're turning to Acts 2.33, listen very carefully. I hope you can do two things at once. Turn your Bible and listen to this. Acts 2.33. Remember, this is the Pentecost where the Spirit is given. The Holy Spirit is poured out. Do you remember that the very first Pentecost that ever happened in history occurred where God gave the law? Remember, Pentecost comes 50 days after Passover. The first Passover occurred where the Israelites are brought out of Egypt because of the blood of the lamb. And at the very first Pentecost, God gave the law. And do you know what happened when he gave the law? It says in Exodus chapter 32, 3,000 perished. Remember, they built the golden calf. What's very interesting at Pentecost, when God gives the spirit in the New Testament, Acts 2.41, it says 3,000 come to eternal life. The law killed, the spirit gave life. Why? Because you and I are sinners. We couldn't obey the law. 
And I think the imagery there is by the Spirit, by His power, we're brought to faith. And so what we have then is as the Spirit is poured out, you have men from all over the place. They're speaking in different languages, and yet they can understand one another. And in one sense, what God removed at the Tower of Babel the idea to communicate and, you know, remember the languages are confused. In some sense, he reestablishes it here, not by man's effort, but by the power of his spirit. And so in Acts 2.33, after talking about what Christ had done, he says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God. Now stop there. Who is that? That's Jesus. He's the one who was exalted to the right hand of God, fulfilling Psalm 110.1. And it says, in having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Notice, who was it that poured it forth? Jesus did. Jesus did. There's the baptism in the Holy Spirit that John the Baptist is telling us about in Matthew chapter 3. That's the first time it comes. He places his people in the sphere, the camp, of the Holy Spirit. That's the idea. That's the first time. And from then on, it happens at conversion. And so when John the Baptist says, quote, the one who is coming after me, remember, that's the Messiah, he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and fire. He was talking about that. He's talking about that. That's is going to be for every believer. The moment you believe it was because of the Spirit, the Spirit that Christ poured out. That's the idea. So now other passages will start to make sense for us. Let me give one that I think makes greater sense when we understand Christ is the one who's doing the baptizing in the spirit. Notice 1 Corinthians 12, 13. By the way, Bob will be coming to this and probably getting into much greater detail than I can here. But I want you to notice I prefer the NRSV rendering of the preposition in. Notice it says, for in the one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Now, in the New American Standard Bible, it will say, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Do you see that? I hope that's in the NASB. I hope I'm not misrepresenting it, but I think that's, I, that's my normal version. I think that's what it says. That's why I use the NRSV. I'm just rendering the same phrase same preposition that we saw used in Matthew 3, verse 11. So it wasn't in the water, or excuse me, it wasn't with the water, it was in the water, remember? It wasn't with the Holy Spirit, it's in the Spirit. That's how it should be rendered. Now, why is that important here? Well, I think it's important because if it's, as the NASB says, by the one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, then who is the implied agent who is doing the baptism? The Holy Spirit. Is it not? But did John the Baptist say that the Holy Spirit will come and baptize you into Christ? Or did it say the one who comes after me, the Messiah, is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit? Are you with me? Well, John the Baptist says Jesus does the baptizing. And I think that's exactly how the NRSV renders it here. Now, lest you think that maybe I'm just a kook and off on my own tangent, listen to what Gordon Fee says, the great scholar in 1 Corinthians. He says this, he says, quote, the prepositional phrase in the spirit is most likely locative, expressing the element in which they have all been immersed, just as the spirit is 
that which they have all been given to drink. Such usage is also in keeping with the rest of the New Testament. Nowhere else does this dative with baptize imply agency, in other words, the Spirit doing the baptizing, but it always refers to the element in which one is baptized, unquote. That's exactly right. You and I were baptized just as John the Baptist promised in the sphere of the Spirit. And so this is where we get our Christian identity. Why? Because notice their common refrain is one spirit. That's what's repeated. Why is that important that we are baptized into that one spirit? That's where unity comes from. Do you have one spirit that brings someone to faith in Jesus, but another spirit brings someone to Buddha or to Hinduism or to atheism? or to the New Age movement, or to Karl Marx, or social justice, or whatever it may be. No, there's one spirit. One. And the whole role is to bring you to confess Jesus Christ. That's the whole goal. That's what we're going to see. I'll read that passage, John 15, 26, to you in a bit. The whole goal is to bring you to Christ. So what? So you can have the forgiveness of sins, you can have the wrath of God removed, and you can have everlasting life. That's what the one spirit does. Now, when does this happen? We said that it initially happened at Pentecost, but it is normative today to happen for every believer at conversion. In fact, it said earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that you can only believe in Jesus, what? In the spirit. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the spirit. That's how the conversion happens. So dear ones, not only do we have our identity then, because we are in the Spirit, bringing us to faith in Christ. But I want you to see that we have our security because we've been placed in the Spirit. Notice here in Ephesians 4.30, Paul said, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now again, that preposition by is the same one that's used here. And again, I would suggest that it probably rendered in whom you were sealed. So the one who's doing the sealing is Christ, and you and I are being placed in the Spirit. I want you to think about this term seal for just a moment. In the ancient Near East, you would have kings. Let's think of the greatest king you can think of on earth, probably the Roman emperor back then. They would often use a seal that have some sort of wax seal where they'd have a signet ring that they would put an imprint in. And that seal would be put around very important paperwork to show they own that. Don't mess with this. This is owned by the king. In the same way, Jesus, the greatest king of all, has put a seal on you. And the seal that you have isn't some lame piece of paper or some molded piece of plastic. But it's the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So do you think that there's a chance that you're going to perish? How long are you sealed in the spirit? Well, notice he says, for the day of redemption. The day that the son who gave you that great gift went to the father's house to prepare a place where he's coming again. And you're sealed in the spirit until that day that he comes for you. What a privilege. What a great privilege. You are sealed in the Holy Spirit never to perish. That's exciting to me. Because I know if my salvation was left to me, I'd goof it up. I could goof it up before the end of the day. 
I, could, I probably goofed it up on the way to church. But sealed by the Spirit. Now, with this great privilege comes a great responsibility. Notice he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. How can we grieve the Spirit? By sinning, by rebelling against God. And so do you see, yes, we have the security, but also the admonition not to sin. And so you and I as believers are the ones that sin really bothers because we're in the spirit and we're convicted and we can't stand it. The unbeliever, they fall in the mud puddle of sin and they'll build their camp there, but not so with you. Brothers and sisters, if there's sin in your life, today is the day to turn from it. Do not grieve the spirit in whom you've been sealed until the day of redemption. Think about it this way. In Philippians chapter 2, doesn't Paul say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? And you say to yourself, you know, I can't do that. The good news comes in the very next verse, verse 13 of Philippians 2, knowing that it's God who is at work in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. That's all through the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters. Okay, now, I want every believer here, everyone listening, to understand that our experience with the Holy Spirit is not a mystical one. It's not one in which he brings unctions upon you and you start barking like a dog or putting your head. I saw one man put his head in a fern bush um, who was preaching, and he said that the Spirit had told him to do that. No, we're not called to some ecstatic experience. What the Holy Spirit will do is, through the Scriptures, cognitively, rationally bring you to faith in Jesus Christ. Not so says Aragama, so says Jesus himself. John 15, 26, Jesus said, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. What is the work of the spirit? The confession of Jesus Christ. That's what the work of the spirit is. That's what it says in 1 John 4, 2. How do we know the spirit of Christ or the spirit of God? Every spirit that confesses Christ come in the flesh is from God. The Holy Spirit brings about the confession of Christ. Why is that important? Because you're going to see teachers on the TV will say, we had a work of the spirit. We had a bunch of gold dust come out of the air vents, proving that this is a work of the spirit. We saw so-and-so kick so-and-so, and they end up being healed of some rare form of cancer. That's a work of the spirit. But all the while, Christ isn't being confessed. You and I can judge a work of the spirit every time. How do we know a work of the spirit? The person and work of Jesus Christ is being confessed. That is the whole goal of the parakletos, the spirit. And so let me leave you now with seven things that the Holy Spirit does for us so that you can see the great benefit of the spirit. Notice, first of all, he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16, 8. How is it that you and I first came to the conclusion that all the sin that we were engaged in was, number one, bad, sinful, and number two, makes us guilty before God? Do you think that we just smartened up one day and we said, you know what, I think I'm going to stop doing all that. I'm a little smarter than my neighbor who's an unbeliever. I'm going to stop. No, it was by the Spirit. It was the Spirit who convicted us of sin, righteousness, and judgment as we were in the world. Number two, he brings the faith to the elect. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in or by the Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit's the one who convicts us, and he's the one who brings us to faith in Jesus. Number three, John 14, 26. This is Jesus bringing the words to the apostles. Remember, he says, I will bring to remembrance all that I said. Or I'm sorry, he said that the helper will bring all to remembrance all that I said. So is that you and I remembering all that Christ said? No, we weren't there with Christ from the beginning. The promise is that the Holy Spirit would enable the apostles to remember what Christ said during his earthly ministry so it could be conveyed to us. So do you see the process of God's word given to us is all by the Spirit? Uh, by the way, I have a typo on this next one. I wanted to put 2 Peter 1.21. I think in your handout, it's 2 Peter 1.20. But here we see that the Spirit comes from the Word. We see this in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. We also see it very clearly in 2 Peter 1.21, where Peter said, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Where do the Scriptures ultimately come from? by the Spirit. That's where they come from. Number five, he gives gifts to the body. Jesus ascends and he gives a gift that is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dispenses spiritual gifts to every single person in the body, every single one. And that's why we need every one of you. If it wasn't for everyone else out there, I'd be sitting in the dark just blowing bubbles. I wouldn't have anything to say. There'd be nobody listening. I wouldn't have a computer. I'd just be done. We all need one another, the whole body. And that's what he gave us. What a great gift. Every believer is gifted by the spirit. He intercedes for us. Do you know how sinful we are? How finite we are? We don't even know how to pray as we ought. The apostle Paul says that he intercedes for us with words too deep, excuse me, with groanings too deep for words. Because we don't even know how to pray as we ought. Why is that? Because we don't know all things as the third person of the Trinity. So often think about, as I'm praying, think about the third person of the Trinity saying, well, he doesn't really need that. No, don't give him that. No, what he really needs is this. You know, can you imagine? He's interceding for you. And when you don't pray, he prays. And when you pray wrongly, he prays. Wow. He's interceding on your behalf. Number seven, you and I are sealed in him until the day of redemption. That's why you're secure. Why? Because you're in the spirit who brought you to Christ. And therefore, you're going to never perish. Brothers and sisters, all of salvation is a gift of God, and it is a Trinitarian affair. The Father planned. He made the plan. Jesus, the Son, carried out the plan, and the Holy Spirit made you part of the plan. He appropriated the plan by bringing you to faith in the Messiah. Let me say it again. The Father made the plan. The Son executed the plan, but the Spirit made you part of the plan by bringing you to faith in Jesus Christ. And because that happened, dear brothers and sisters, as Bob DeWay has been teaching in this congregation for 25 years, there are no higher-ordered Christians. As you go out the door today, remember that there's not some Christian who has the Spirit and another Christian who does not. No, we were all, as believers, baptized into the one Spirit, every one of us. There's not some who have and some who don't. Number two, the Holy Spirit is Christ's ultimate gift to the body as he prepares a place for us in the heavenly realm. And all things that you need to persevere in the faith were given by him. Number three, because you are sealed in the Holy Spirit, 
you can be absolutely certain that you're held securely in the grip of God until either you go to be with Christ or he comes for you. That's the really good news. All because Jesus Christ, the great Messiah, not only died for us, not only was raised for us, not only ascended for us, but he baptized all of us in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the great promise and truth that your son is so gracious that he gives us this great gift of sending the Spirit upon us, that we would be brought to faith, that we would be transformed, that we would be forever secure. We do thank you for this, Lord. We see that salvation is completely a gift given by you. Heavenly Father, we're grateful. We do pray that in these coming weeks and months, you continue to give us boldness and opportunity to preach your gospel, to proclaim the greatness of Jesus Christ, and that you would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment ahead of us, that you would regenerate hearts and bring our loved ones, our family, friends, co-workers to faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Heavenly Father, we do pray for those who are hurting in our congregation because of COVID or other diseases or maladies, Lord. We do pray that you would heal. I pray for comfort upon the Kramitzes. I pray comfort upon us as we grieve his loss. I pray, Lord, that your glorious gospel would go forth at the memorial for Jim and that you would get all the honor and the glory for what you did in his life as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand, if you will, for the benediction. This is from Jude 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless all of you. I hope you have a wonderful week.